Hi above the beautiful Buckhead District of Atlanta. This is your personal transgender scientist, Dana Bevan. In the last two episodes, I reviewed the evidence for a genetic gender predisposition for being transgender using both twin and DNA marker studies. In this episode, I'll review some of the evidence which further demonstrates genetic involvement in gender predisposition. These include biomarkers for being transgender and the results of so-called natural experiments. The first biomarker we'll cover is handedness. Transgender people tend to be less right-handed than others. That doesn't mean that they do everything with their left hand exclusively. It just means they perform more common daily tasks with their left hand than other people do. There's actually a scale for measuring handedness, the Old Field Edinburgh Scale. It's a list of 20 common tasks. And people were asked to indicate which ones they generally do with their left hand and which with their right. The tasks are like brushing your teeth, hitting a golf ball, using a fork and knife, and of course, writing. The responses are scored against population norms, and the result is a nearly continuous measurement of handedness. My handedness measurements include several tasks that I do in my left hand, but most others do with their right. Notably, I swing a golf club from the lefty side and I use a rake and broom with my left hand. I might also get lefty credit for the way I swing a cricket bat. You see, the scale was devised in the UK, where cricket is one of the national sports. But I do swing a baseball bat from the left side, which is probably equivalent. It's consistent with the handedness findings that one of the brain structures involved in left side body movements is actually enlarged in transgender people. This is probably because there's more to compute there than on the other side. Four days before the first Diane Sawyer interview with Caitlyn Jenner was about to be aired, I got a phone call from one of their producers saying that she had just found out that there was actually was transgender science, and she had found one of my books. We talked for a couple of hours, including the topic of handedness, and she apologized that we had, hadn't talked sooner. Evidently, it was too late to change anything in the show. But after that, I had a thought. I went into the internet and started to look at early pictures of Jenner in the Olympic decathlon. Sure enough, Jenner threw the javelin, the shot, and the discus with the left hand. I shot off an email including the pictures to the producer. But Jenner didn't do everything with his left hand. He used the same grip on the pole vault that most others do. Later, I wrote her a six-page review of the show. The show was actually pretty accurate, even though Jenner's knowledge of being transgender was limited at that time. But the animated science cartoon fillers between segments were abysmal. They really missed the mark. I kept looking and found that being less right-handed is not unusual for high-profile transgender athletes. In addition to Jenner, both Renee Richards, the tennis player, and Michelle Demaresque, the Canadian champion mountain bike racer, both tend to use their left hands, but they're, they're probably better known for their legal and administrative struggles to get themselves into the pro ranks rather than their handedness. What do we know about handedness that links back to genetics? We know that if both parents are so-called left-handed, it is more likely that their offspring will be left-handed. Unfortunately, most investigators of genetics of handedness have not used the Edinburgh scale and still and, and use only which hand people write with as the criteria for handedness. In my time in elementary school, teachers were just beginning to cease forcing left-handed students to use their right hand for writing.
So using writing as an indicator in older adults may be misleading. And using the Edinburgh or similar scales might, might improve their results. At least three genes have been implicated in involvement with handedness, but most investigators have only assumed a genetic model with one gene. From the last podcast, you probably know, now know that there are other genetic models that are possible, namely the multiple gene polygenetic threshold model, which seems to fit the phenomena of being transgender. It's going to be interesting in the future to match up the DNA markers for being transgender with those for handedness. If they do match, it would help to explain the nature of the co-occurrence. If they don't match, we might look for a common epigenetic mechanism to explain the co-occurrence. The second biomarker that has been associated with being transgender is the so-called 2D-4D finger length ratio. Several studies have shown that transgender people have a higher ratio, that is, their index finger to ring finger length is higher than others. I suspect that this is a genetic effect because this ratio varies by area of the world, where genes would be similar through intermarriage, and because in mice and lower animals, the ratio can actually be changed by selective breeding. We know which genes control finger length, the HOX or HOX genes. They provide the plan for all body appendages, including the fingers. The Hox genes are not found on the X or Y sex chromosomes, but instead clusters of these genes are found on some of the other 44 chromosomes, specifically numbers 2, 7, 12, and 17, since each of the 44 are identified by number. There is, however, a controversy about what controls this ratio. Some believe that it responds to prenatal blood levels of testosterone, in a fetus in a womb, rather than genetics. This would make it an epigenetic mechanism. We'll examine whether prenatal testosterone is a causative factor in being transgender in the next episode. The story of prenatal testosterone as an epigenetic determinant is a very dark story involving eugenics and world politics that you won't want to miss. Eugenics is a philosophy that seeks to improve the so-called quality of human genes by eliminating undesirables from the gene pool, like those with low IQ, people with mental illness, transgender, and homosexual people. The biomarker studies that I just finished describing apply to both trans women and trans men, but there are some biomarkers that pertain only to trans men. There are several papers that indicate that the shape of teeth and skeleton features of female to male trans people are different from other natal females. The skeleton features have to do with the shape and ratio of pelvic bone length. Investigators believe these differences to be due to genetics. And now for the so-called natural experiments. These are unintentional human accidents and accidents of nature that provide us with data. These phenomena often involve small numbers of people and absence of control groups, which we usually require for comparison. So we need to regard the information cautiously. First, there's the saga of David Reimer. Shortly after birth, David underwent circumcision and the operation went all wrong and damaged his external genitalia. His parents subsequently agreed to genital plastic surgery to give David external genitalia that resembled that of a female. They decided to raise David as a girl, so David became Brenda. They did all this under the advice of John Money, the psychologist we ran into the first episode who repurposed the word gender from language for just such an application. 
Although Money knew that Brenda would be raised in the feminine gender behavior category, they also knew that Brenda's birth sex was male, so the two were different. Money had a theory that gender behavior could be shaped by parental upbringing if it was started early enough. David Reimer was nearly a perfect subject to prove or disprove this theory, except that he was a few months older than Money's limit. Not only had David been declared male at birth, but he had an identical twin male brother whom Money could use for comparison. So David became Brenda, and during childhood there were immediate problems. It seemed Brenda was a bit of a tomboy and resisted upbringing in the feminine gender category, despite parental insistence. Brenda was interviewed by Money several times as he grew up and clearly rejected the feminine category. But Money public insisted that all was going smoothly with his upbringing as a girl. As a young adult, Brenda sensed that she belonged in the masculine category and that a social transition to the masculine side. He even got married as a man. But things went downhill with David and his family, and he committed suicide at age 34, one of the reasons many have involved his treatment. There was one scientist who did not believe Money's story. He didn't believe that it had been an easy adaptation by David to feminine gender. His name is Milton Diamond. Milton eventually acquired Money's interview notes with Brenda, which revealed that David really never adapted to the feminine gender. His identical twin brother had displayed masculine behavior as a control. The case of David Reimer provides some circumstantial evidence that gender behavior predisposition is innate and permanent. But scientists rarely are convinced by evidence from only one case, and rightly so. Still, the case received high visibility, and people talk about it still today. You can read all about David's story in the best-selling book, As Nature Made Him. The other natural experiment had more subjects, but is still regarded as only circumstantial evidence, because there was no adequate control group. It involves a genetic defect called cloacal extrophy, which results in a condition involving a difference in anatomy of external genitalia in males. As with David Reimer, surgeons were able to perform plastic surgery in 29 such children who changed their genitalia to resemble the female anatomy. After attempts to raise these children in the feminine gender category, the results came in that all 29 children exhibited masculine behavior, and half even said that they were males. Again, while the results of this study are interesting, they are not conclusive by themselves. Taken together, the genetic inheritance evidence, the full genome identification of DNA general markers, the biomarkers, and the natural experiments make for a convincing story of genetic gender behavior predisposition. At least I think so. And this evidence addresses the broader question of whether being transgender involves its own biology, apart from sex. In subsequent podcasts on culture, we will again differentiate between genetic gender predisposition and cultural gender behavior categories. Next time, we'll look at epigenetics, the mechanisms that can change DNA or its expression, and their effects on being transgender. We'll also describe the evidence that rules out several potential causal factors for being transgender that are rooted in epigenetics. Next time, be prepared for some dark tales of eugenics and U.S. government refusal to investigate being transgender. 
You can find references to the studies I mentioned and more information in my three transgender science books, which are written under the names Dana and Thomas Bevan. My latest book for general audience is titled Being Transgender. I also blog monthly at www.tgforum.com. Thank you.